The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Dan Roth, Editor-in-Chief here at LinkedIn, and welcome to This Is Working, a show where I talk with people who have an outsized impact on our world. And so if you can find something you're passionate about, like I was lucky enough to, that was essentially a hobby that turned into a career, it's greatly simplifying. You might have recognized that voice, that's Bill Gates. Bill Gates is the founder of Microsoft, which to be clear is LinkedIn's parent company, and he is better known today as one of the world's largest philanthropists. On that last point, Bill doesn't just give away money, he tries to influence other people to go where he sees the world going. And one of the main ways he does this is through his annual letter. In the annual letter, he and Melinda will explain the data that they look at that tells them whether their giving is working or not, some of the big problems they see around the world, people they have met who have changed their lives and whose lives they've changed. We recorded this interview in 2016, right after Bill had put out his annual letter. This annual letter was different from other ones for two major reasons. One is he focused on a single topic, clean energy. Two is it was written with a particular audience in mind, high school students. Now, high school students aren't typically huge consumers of the Bill and Melinda Gates annual letter, uh, but Bill knew what he was doing. He knew that if he could get this in front of people who are passionate about climate change and understand this is going to be a topic that will have an outsized impact on their lives, that he might be able to get them to spread the message more. And you can kind of see that taking place now. Last week, there was a massive walkout among high school students protesting uh, climate change. CNN just did a seven-hour climate change town hall with Democratic candidates. And even in the business realm, a thousand Amazon employees recently said they were going to walk out over their company's need to tackle uh, climate issues much more seriously. So this demand for big ideas and serious attention is much more out there than it was in 2016 when we did this interview. So I thought it was a great time to bring the conversation with Bill Gates back. You're going to hear him talk about, this is, I think, a surprise to everyone, but why energy is a bipartisan issue. And he talks about how students can tap into what he calls their superpowers to deal with it. Plus, he has some great advice for college students who are wondering what's next for their careers. It's a great interview. He's always fascinating to talk with. Hope you enjoy this interview with Bill Gates. I got a chance to look at your original annual letter. And one of the things that strikes me is when you first started doing an annual letter, you covered the world. You talked about healthcare and agriculture and education. And in this year's letter, you were focused on one thing, which is energy. Was that a conscious decision to really narrow it down to one particular topic? Yeah, when we started the letter, I felt like I wanted to give an update on all the foundation's different activities. And although I still want to do that, uh, the CEO of the foundation, Sue Desmond Hellman, will will do something. And so for Melinda and I, we've decided that uh, really taking something broad, uh, like the improvements we're seeing in poor countries, the the myths about development is one that uh, I think resonated with people. And so we're not trying to pass as much data about all the different grants and things we're doing. That's great stuff. Between Sue Letter and our website, we'll take care of that. Here, we're trying to go to a very broad audience. 
and talk about some of the challenges and why we're optimistic about even one of the toughest challenges there is, which is having cheap energy that uh, doesn't create climate problems. And energy, it feels like you are going down to the base, like you've been working your way down the base. You've got, you've got agriculture, you've got healthcare, and then this time you say none of that can actually happen until there's energy. How did you come to that decision that this was the, the most important or the foundational element that had to be solved? Well, our modern lifestyles are different from 300 years ago because of how intensely we use energy. The transport system, the materials we build, the electricity uh, that uh, powers all of the appliances. And so we're using uh, over 100 times as much energy as we did back in those days. The fact that several billion people on the planet are essentially living in the past, they have no electricity at all, and when they think of energy, that's the wood that they go out into the forest and gather and, and burn in their stove. Uh, so part of uplifting those economies is going to be to get energy for them. The sooner we can do that, the better. It's got to be inexpensive because uh, these countries are uh, quite poor. And so it's actually amazing how little we've invested in that. It is quite primal. Now, it's, it, we still need to think about health. We still need to think about education. And all these things going together get you out of the poverty trap. Uh, you, you raise agricultural productivity, the labor comes off the farm, they're healthy, uh, so they can be well-educated, and uh, then have these high-value jobs that allows you to fund the energy and transport. And we've seen that happen in so many countries, but it won't happen in these countries very fast unless we help out. You talk about lifting out of poverty, but the other side of it also is, is climate change and is making sure the planet is actually inhabitable. And you want you 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 say that we basically have to stop all carbon emissions by the end of the century. Um, how confident are you, especially when you look at the, at the economics of the world today, and with oil at two thousand four levels? Does it worry you at all that our clean energy future is f further away than ever? If there was no innovation, and countries like India were forced to choose between electrifying their country and having, instead of burning wooden stoves that cause all sorts of respiratory problems, getting electricity into those households, they would probably favor electrification of the country. And they would still have emitted way less CO2 per person than the rich countries of the world. So the just thing in that case would be that we'd somehow figure out how to pull CO2 out of the air or uh, some solution like that. So without innovation, I'm not very optimistic that we won't run the scary experiment of letting the heating take place. The sad fact is that the most suffering from that heating will take place uh, in the poorest countries who have done basically nothing to cause the problem. So up in the northern latitudes, the heating is less of a problem. It's the equatorial regions where the common crops stop growing, and here you have uh, farmers who are living on the edge already. Today's weather, uh, year by year, sometimes they have famine, their kids don't get enough to eat, so they grow up uh, stunted, don't, don't fully develop. So they're right on the edge, and this makes things harder. And so we owe it to uh, the poor that we change our energy system and avoid this uh, 
happening to them. I understand all that. Do you think that it is something that we might owe it to them, but are you confident that scientists and businesses and politicians, especially in a world where oil is cheap and they might not feel it because they don't live, we don't live in equatorial regions, might not put the money, the time, the resources into making sure that clean energy is accessible and affordable and the, and the best minds are working on it? Well, you're absolutely right that hydrocarbons being cheap makes uh, the difficulty of getting a new energy system for electricity, for transport, for industry, for your house, it makes it more difficult. If all energy was very expensive, then these technologies would find it uh, easier to become, even without price supports, the best way of doing things. So it is difficult, but science has lots of miracles that it has provided. One thing we, we can do is we can increase the supply of innovation by having more government R&D, more private investors willing to take risks. That's the supply side of innovation. And then we can improve the demand side by having things like tax credits or carbon taxes or things that favor the clean energy over the traditional hydrocarbon energy. And some mix of increasing the supply of innovation and increasing the demand for these new products will accelerate this and time really matters here. If we don't solve the problem till after 2100, then the ill effects for the poorest will have been quite dramatic. And many ecosystems probably will never uh, be able to, to be restored. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Your letter is really geared towards high school kids. Your previous letters have not been geared towards students. What, how did you make the decision that that would be, that that's your readership for this particular, this year's letter? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the whole idea of uh, a superpower and something that we dreamed of came out of an interview that a Kentucky high school, school newsletter, a couple of students asked us the superpower question. And Melinda and I had been talking about, well, what are we gonna do in the annual letter? And it was interesting when she talked about time and uh, how, how much uh, women have to spend more time than men, including in poor countries, extreme things like fetching the water and getting the firewood. And I talked about that energy where you just you know, flip the light, the light switch you know, is a type of superpower. It's a type of miracle. Anyway, using that framework, we thought, well, since they asked the question, and secondly, because their generation really this is all about an investment in the future. Changing cultural practices in terms of 
what work men and women do in the home, changing entire energy uh, systems in order to preserve the environment. Those are things that you have to invest in now and really get people talking about uh, in order to potentially have this big change in that next generation. So they have to be kind of enlightened and talking about this thing. And you know, are they, you know, do they really believe this is important, should be prioritized? A lot of them will get to be uh, working on companies that are involved in these activities. And certainly it's their voice uh, that, that says, hey, the country should not ignore long-term problems. You talk frequently about measuring anything, the importance of measuring into whether it works or not. How do you measure whether this letter reaches the right audience, whether you've made an impact with this? Well, uh, I don't think we'll you know, know exactly because you know, it's, hopefully there's just a broad group of people uh, who get this into their psyche. Uh, we're still hoping that a lot of uh, policymakers read the letter as well. And we want to really get the discussion going. For example, in the energy case, I'm afraid a lot of people hear various small things that might help reduce climate change. And unfortunately, a little small things don't add up mm -hmm. when you're emitting 36 billion tons a year, and that number has to get down to zero. And so the equation I've got in there uh, you know, which I tried to make pretty straightforward for people, essentially proves that unless your energy generation system is completely zero carbon emission, there's no chance you're gonna get there. So even though it's nice to change lifestyles and, and maybe be a little less frugal about what you use, we can't expect that the planet uh, will uh, get to zero just by behavior change. It doesn't make a dent in the equation. If we needed a 10% reduction, then you could say, okay, uh, that might be the, the, a way to get there. But here, it's not going to get you there. And so understanding how daunting this thing is, unfortunately, if people either don't think there's a problem or they think it's an easy problem to solve, then the type of investment that we need to go through, you're just not going to do it because you you don't think that's necessary for one reason or the other. And so it's a little bit of a challenge. People say, whoa, is he really saying zero? Yeah. It, he can't mean that. That's very difficult. That means essentially either we have to capture the carbon, uh, the hydrocarbon use emits, or we have to seize to use them all together. And that is not the path that we're on today. It's a a very, very different path. So you know, only having seen lots of great innovation, mostly in the health and the IT space, can I s sit and say, despite that equation, I still feel like it's a problem that can and, and will be solved. What do you think about when you see people talking about innovative solutions to the world's problems? We're going to we're going to invent our way into some kind of a solution for this particular problem in Africa, or this problem in India. Um, or if you look at what happened recently with internet.org and the, and the, and the pushback that, uh, that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook got from that, as someone who's been a philanthropist now for 2000, you started with the, the Gates Foundation. In 2008, you went full-time. Exactly. Right? Are there lessons that you've learned along the way that you would say to them, this is how, this is how you should think? Well, the... 
actually getting things delivered, uh, so you get, for example, new vaccines to be used and get them out to all the world's children. We've been working on that uh, since the year 2000. We created Gavi in partnership with various governments, and we've made massive progress, but we're not fully there even after 15 years. And we've had to learn a lot about working with governments in poor countries, uh, how you create the personnel system, how you get the money allocated. Uh, it isn't easy. Uh, take northern Nigeria. Uh, almost half the kids don't get their vaccines. Now, uh, state by state, there's 18 states up there, we are partnering to help them fix uh, the problems that they have. And so it's not easy to get things out, uh, but you've got to work with the government. You've got to be very patient. Uh, you learn, you try different things. Uh, India is another place we do a lot of work, and we have fantastic relationship at the federal and state level, but uh, many things have been tougher, taken a lot longer than we expected. Uh, but, but, you know, we kind of knew that going in, uh, and, you know, we're going to be around uh, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, so we can take the lessons, including the failures, and be smarter about how we, we approach it next time. Would you talk a little bit about um, career decisions for kids? We, one of the things that we like to ask people in these interviews is, is if someone comes to you, I'm sure this happens all the time when you go to high schools, someone comes to you and says, how, how should I figure out what I want to do? How do I know what I'm going to do with my life? What kind of advice do you give? Well, I, there's many tracks to success. If you look at the skill sets that allowed Microsoft to be super successful, it was blending together people with many backgrounds. Engineering was the, the core thing. Without that, the rest of it sort of didn't make sense. And I, I'm an engineer. I loved writing software. I got a chance starting at age 13 to spend most of my time thinking about, okay, what's good software? What can it do? Uh, that kind of thing. And so if you can find something you're passionate about, like I was lucky enough to, that was essentially a hobby that turned into a career, it's greatly simplifying, uh, and you you see that people who are good at design, people who are good at thinking about policy, they'll often you know find a career. Uh, I've got a daughter in college, and she's still trying to decide. And you know, there's a lot of angst: should I go be a doctor, social worker? You know, so many choices, uh, and and you know that's that's great, but it is it is hard to pick. I do think basic knowledge of the sciences, you know, math skills, economics, a lot of careers in the future will be very demanding on those things. Not necessarily that you'll be writing code, but you need to understand what can the engineers do, what can they not do? How are they likely to revolutionize the field that you're in? Even if you're thinking about sales or marketing, the rules of the game will be changed by the the digital revolution, and that's only one revolution. The, the genetic revolution is coming along, and so the more people can kind of get a sense of that. Uh, as we were discussing, we're hoping there's an energy revolution that kind of will surprise people in terms of what that provides. So having these frameworks to look at change and understand the impact of this rate of invention that's faster than ever before, people who can adjust to that help the organization figure out how they take advantage of change, that will be there in all the, the different job areas. So do what you love, be ready for change, understand how change works. 
Right, and it, it, to the degree you, you like science, engineering, and economics, yeah. uh, pick as much of that as you have an appetite for because those are the agents of change for all institutions. Great. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that was Bill Gates. If you liked what you heard, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. Also, be sure to share what you liked about the show or even what you didn't using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. As you can imagine, I'm constantly posting new ideas and new interviews. And you'll get my newsletter that's tied to the show as well. I'm Dan Roth. Thanks for listening.